Hello, everybody, and thank you for coming back to another episode of the podcast. Thank you for listening last week because that was really cool. I didn't know that people would like to learn about Christine Chandler as much as I would. Um, like I said, there's somebody who lives in my mind, and to be able to share all of the information that I know about them, it was freeing, to say the least. Anyway, this is episode two. So, this episode is actually going to be for my science nerds, my nonfiction lovers, people who just like to learn a lot of random facts about history and things that actually happened that really shouldn't have happened. Um, believe it or not, my favorite genre of book to read is nonfiction, and actually the book that I'm talking about today is my favorite book of all time. Even though the book is only about 278 pages, it's jam-packed with so much information that you don't know that you need to know. Some of this information, I wondered why we weren't taught in school. Um, if you are a science nerd and you love to hear fun facts and stories that will make you say there's absolutely no way this is true, then this is the episode for you. So, without further ado, thanks for listening, and this is Dumb Deep Dives. So, like I said, this is one of my favorite books. This might be my favorite book of all time. I've read this book about three or four times, and every time I read it, I am just as enveloped in the story as I was the very first time. I learned about this book from my TA and my chemistry class I took my freshman year of college. Um, and that is about the only thing I can thank that TA for. But... This book is called The Alchemy of Air, and it is by Thomas Hager. Hager? The last name is H-A-G-E-R, and I don't know how to pronounce that, but if you want to look him up, I spelled out his last name for you. So, we're going to do this kind of book review style. You know those book reviews you had to do in 7th and 8th grade that were just, like, really miserable? It's going to be one of those, but more interesting. I'll put a little spin on it because I'm not getting a grade for this. So, the book starts with Sir William Crookes in 1898. And just to preface this, as someone who grew up in the cornfields of Indiana, boy am I excited to talk about chapter one. The whole chapter is about farming, and I have prepared my whole life for this. So anyway, Sir William Crookes discovered the Crookes tube, this was the first, first version of the cathode ray tubes they used in televisions, and he discovered thallium, which is a element on the periodic table. He was giving his inaugural speech as the incoming president of the British Academy of Sciences, which usually is very dull. People fall asleep, nobody pays attention. But he started his speech with this line, England and all civilized nations stand in deadly peril. This deadly peril? Overpopulation. The population of the Earth was growing exponentially during this time because of re recent scientific discoveries allowing for populations to live longer and healthier lives. As a result, the farmland that the Earth had was running out. As the population grew, the farmland being used would become less viable and thus less food would grow. 
Crook's estimation was that by the 1930s, large amounts of the population would begin to die of hunger. This extinction of the human race was actually set to happen 50 years before his speech. But then the Great Plains were discovered, and other great pieces of land in Russia were discovered. His biggest warning during this speech was that there were no more Great Plains to be discovered. There was no more land in Russia that would pop up. The land that we had and the land that we discovered was it. And we needed to figure something out fast. The thing about growing crops, and like I said, grown up in the cornfields, baby, this is, this is what I was made for, is that the nutrients, you know, come from the soil. That's how the crops grow. And every year, every other year, you have to rotate your crops so that the nutrients in the soil, you know, are mixed up and the plants can better absorb the nutrients. But that is actually not enough. And that is what the, that's the problem they were running into. Because all of the crops that they were planting were soaking up all the nutrients in the soil. And the soil became less and less and less fertile. To really drive Crook's point home in his speech, he added that wheat, the crop in which Caucasians and Europeans primarily owned and farmed, was in danger, causing a, quote, racial starvation. He pretty much said, if you guys don't care now, think about the fact that white people are going to die. Now it's important. His solution to create a large amount of synthetic fertilizer that humans could use to grow their crops. So, like I was talking about, plants get their nutrients from the ground. But the nutrients that they get from the ground and from the soil and from water are things like phosphorus, nitrogen, and potassium. The most important of these is nitrogen. Fun fact, do you know what the air is primarily made up of? Not oxygen. The air around us is 80% nitrogen but not the type of nitrogen that plants can use. See, plants need fixed nitrogen, which is nitrogen in a fixed form, which is a solid or a liquid. Manure is an example of fixed nitrogen, but the nitrogen in the air is not fixed because it is air. It's not a solid or a liquid. Virgin soil is rich in fixed nitrogen, but after being used, the nitrogen levels decrease. People after this speech, did not believe Crooks, and brought up the fact that bird guano, bird poop, was still very accessible, and that the white powder from the Andes, from Chile, was an endless sea that would never run out. Well, hate to break it to them, but they were wrong. Move on to the next chapter. The next chapter is kind of random. Um, It just tells you the historical you know, things, trying to figure out the word. It tells you, oh, the history of the discovery of fireworks um, and saltpeter and other, you know, chemical things. Um, Something that was really interesting was the fact that Charles Darwin came across an indigenous tribe in Peru that was unknowingly hoarding salt. Salt was very expensive and very rare at this time because people did not know how to make it or where it came from. Darwin wasn't interested that they were hoarding salt. He came across an 
ignorant amount of salt. He literally was talking about going across like the desert of Peru and seeing like hills and hills of salt. And homeboy just didn't care. He just ignored it and went to the Galapagos and did something with evolution, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. Darwin, you know, evolution's not that important. Am I right, fellas? Anyway, the next chapter talks about the Chinchas Islands, the most valuable islands in the world in 1850. It consisted of 10 stories of guano, which is bird poop. Guano was the most valuable fertilizer in the world because people realized, hey, you know what? Crooks might be onto something, but at the same time, we got this bird poop over here. We're going to use it. We have an island that's 10 stories tall with the stuff. The island ran on slave labor. Most of the slaves were from China, and they were tricked into going and working on the, on the island. The slaves were treated like animals, working 20 hours a day, 6 hours a week, many of them sick with malnutrition, dehydration, or what they called guano handling illness, which was vomiting, fever, diarrhea. They didn't really, you know, clear it up much other than calling it guano handling illness. They weren't given much food or water and barely treated like they were human. They were tortured if they didn't work. Many of them committed suicide to get out. And when they died, they were buried in shallow graves under the guano. This island was originally property of the Incas and other indigenous tribes. These tribes were important, knew the importance of guano and almost worshipped it. One time, a German scientist tried to get the guano market off the ground, but no one listened to him because they thought, what, what good's bird poop, you know? But the guano market took off after a story was published in the American Farmer magazine in 1824. The business began to boom, and they even used guano as fertilizer on southern plantations to grow cotton. As guano became the new trend, President Fillmore even talked about it in his first State of the Union address. The United States began to try and monopolize the islands, just like they do everything else. The craze kept growing until the day came that they hit rock on the Chinchas Islands. The world needed guano, but their biggest source has now been depleted. And this, my friends, is where our first absolutely astonishing fact comes in. This is where the U.S. enacts the Guano Islands Act. This is an actual act that was put into place. This is an excerpt from the book. The need for guano was so great that in 1856, the U.S. Congress passed the Guano Islands Act, which allowed any U.S. citizen to lay claim to any deserted guano island anywhere in the world and make it U.S. territory. The law essentially deputized all Americans to claim land in their nation's name, an act that has no parallel in history, as historian Jimmy Skaggs put it. Fly-by-night companies began taking territory, including much that should have never been claimed, Islands that were inhabited, islands that had no guano, islands that already belonged to other nations, islands they found on old maps, islands they heard about from drunken whaling captains, islands that did not exist. Within a few decades, the United States claimed under the act a total of 94 islands, rocks, and keys, many of them sprinkled in that great stretch of Pacific Ocean between Hawaii and Samoa 
that later became known as the American Polynesia. Others were in the Caribbean. So, that's a little fun fact for you. We got the American Polynesia and the Caribbean because some dude thought there was guano on them and said, hey, this is ours now. They took islands that had people on them already, islands that had no guano, and just said, meh, United States own this now. And also, the best part about this, the Guano Islands Act is still in effect today. On the next chapter, scientists began trying to find a way to make synthetic nitrogen, and one of those scientists was named Fritz Haber. Like any good scientist, Fritz Haber was a very anxious, nervous, and squeamish little man. He had about one or two mental breakdowns a year, just as any good, you know, scientist or person does. Companies were beginning to hire scientists like Haber to find a way to milk the nitrogen out of the air, our most abundant and renewable source. Now we get into chemistry a little bit, and I'll try to explain this as best as I can. The tough thing that about milking the nitrogen out of the air, which is the most abundant source because the air is 80% nitrogen, is that nitrogen in the air is N2, which is two mole- molecules of nitrogen bonded together. And these molecules of nitrogen were bonded together so tightly or are bonded together so tightly, it is almost impossible to separate. The reason they're so hard to separate is because they share a covalent bond. To explain this, let's go with, start with atoms. Every atom has electrons around it that carry energy. Every atom has a goal to have a complete set of electrons, which is eight electrons. That is what they strive for a complete set of eight electrons in order, yeah, in order for the atom to have a complete set of electrons, sometimes it will need to bond with other atoms that have the number of electrons the first atom needs to have a complete electron shell. So if one atom has five outer electrons and one atom has three, they'll bond together. And then guess what? They'll both you know, like, make up for each other's weaknesses. When two atoms share electrons, this is called a covalent bond. And this is honestly already a pretty strong bond. But with N2, the nitrogen in the air, this has a triple bond, which is the strongest chemical bond in nature. Nitrogen in this form will also not bond to any other molecule. Once N2 which is the nitrogen in the air, is split apart, the individual nitrogen atoms become unstable and try to bond with anything it can to be stable again. So when it gets split up from its partner, it will attempt to bond with any other atom that it can to have a complete electron shell. That is what it, that is the atom's whole goal. And it doesn't care what it is. It will bond with it if it makes it a complete electron shell. And like I said, depending on what the nitrogen atom bonds with, it can create an explosive, a fertilizer, or a component of DNA called nucleic acid. 
Haber and another German scientist, Nernst, went head in head trying to figure out how to create a synthetic nitrogen. Nernst and Haber's findings were different, and because Nernst was more successful, he threw Haber under the bus. They were trying to synthesize ammonia, which is NH3. It's one nitrogen atom and three hydrogen atoms. They were trying to pull that from the air to attempt to create nitrogen or separate the nitrogen molecule out of the ammonia so it was easier to get the nitrogen instead of just working with the nitrogen, like the N2 in the air. But Nernst had better findings or different findings than Haber did in his experimental runs. And since Nernst was a big shot, he threw Haber under the bus and was like, well, you're wrong and you're an idiot. And Haber, being the scientist that he was, was humiliated, so he threw himself into his work more than he ever had before and was trying to prove himself right. In the next chapter, they bring in a man called Wilhelm Oswald. He was a giant scientist in Germany. He thought he could win the race to synthetic nitrogen, so he tried a machine that that would combine the nitrogen in the air with hydrogen to make ammonia. Basically, he was doing what Haber did, but years later. He made a machine that could handle the temperature needed to reach to split the N2. The machine also had the input from nitrogen, the hydrogen, and a pump to create the pressure that was needed to recombine the nitrogen with the hydrogen. He ran the machine, and it created an amount of ammonia that was larger than any other scientist had created. He applied for a patent, and one of Germany's biggest chemical companies sent an intern down to check it out. This intern's name was Karl Bosch, who becomes a big figure later in this book. Bosch realized that that what Oswald had gotten as a reaction was an anomaly, and it could not be repeated. BASF, the company that was going to back Oswald's research and the biggest chemical company in Germany, um, was looking for a breakthrough a while after creating their synthetic indigo dye. That business had begun to die out and they needed something else. And this is when they saw Haber and they heard about his research into synthetic fertilizer and nitrogen. Haber's research into synthetic nitrogen was something that they wanted to put their money behind, and this is exactly what Haber needed to continue his research and to be able to buy new machines and buy all of the catalysts and reactants needed. Haber signed a deal with BASF, and the race for synthetic nitrogen really took off after that. He and other scientists work on machines, and they could do the research in that they could do the research in or the reactions in, sorry. These machines had to be able to withstand 1,000 degrees Celsius and uh, pressures between 100 and 200 atmospheres, or the equivalent of being one mile deep in the ocean. After finding a suitable uh, material for the machines, they then had to find a catalyst, or a substance that would set off the reaction. They tried multiple catalysts, and the most promising one was osmium. It created the highest amount of ammonia they had ever seen before. That amount, the highest amount of ammonia they'd ever seen, one cubic centimeter, a little less than a quarter of a teaspoon.
After that, they paired Bosch and Haber together. Bosch was an engineer, loved machines more than people, understood machines more than people, so he was the one who was going to make the machine. Haber would figure out the perfect equation to create the nitrogen needed. Haber was the mad scientist behind it. He was the one figuring out what amounts of what needed to be put in. After many trials, Haber found the perfect equation and with the help of Bosch, had the perfect machine. Historians call his discovery as important as the flight of the Wright brothers or the discovery of the first working light bulb. Haber and Bosch worked on finding new catalysts that were cheaper and would make the same amount of ammonia. Osmium was really, really expensive. And the, other, the only other one that worked was uranium. And as you can guess, that was also really, really expensive. Bosch hired a man named Alwyn Mitash, I'm assuming, to try to find another catalyst. And to their surprise, they found one that had previously not worked. Pure iron is what Altswald, the guy earlier who tried the reaction and then Bosch figured out that it was just an absolute anomaly and didn't work. He tried pure iron and it was found not to work, but they found an iron resource in Sweden that would work for some reason. They found out if you added things like calcium and aluminum oxide, it created a large amount of ammonia and for very, very cheap. So if it wasn't pure iron, and if it was iron that had impurities and other minerals, it would work. After this discovery, BASF no longer needed Haber. They had all the patents, they had all the machines, and Haber was fine with that. He wanted to move on to the next thing. He'd figured out how to make synthetic nitrogen, and he didn't need to be there for the rest of it. All they, All the other scientists had to do was the math to, you know, make the equations work for machines that would be the size of factories. But after this deal, Haber made enough money from this contract that he would die a rich man. This is not where the research ends, though. They needed to make a much larger version of Haber's machine, one that could pump out tons upon tons of ammonia and nitrogen a year. They had a catalyst, They knew what they needed to add, but they didn't know how to make the machines the size of a factory. They needed to have hydrogen flow into the machines, but there was not nearly enough hydrogen in the air to be sufficient. Hydrogen was also very, very reactive, and that led to the danger of the machines exploding. So, if they built the machines wrong and used the incorrect amount of hydrogen, they're basically working on a bomb. The heat that the machines run at were high enough to make iron red hot. And that was, a problem because, that was a problem because all of the machines were made of iron. The pressures needed were the highest that any scientist had ever worked with before. So Bosch was, really, was truly a pioneer of this work because this was something nobody had ever done before. They worked with steel companies in Germany to create valves to monitor the input of hydrogen. They had gauges made to monitor the temperatures and pressure in the machine. They made larger prototypes called the big rigs. They were eight feet tall and had one inch thick steel walls. They ran them for a few days and it looked promising. The large machines were making ammonia and Bosch thought that they'd hit it. 
thought that they'd hit it big. And then they blew up. They found out that the steel, the strongest steel in the world, had become brittle and fragile. What happened was that the hydrogen was not was working its way into the steel, combining with the carbon, and then leaving the iron pure, which was much weaker than the steel, the actual steel with the carbon in it. No one had ever seen a reaction like this, and this could be a game over for the entire operation unless Bosch acted quickly. It took six months, but Bosch realized that it was better if he allowed the hydrogen to just eat away at the walls. He made a liner where the hydrogen could react with the metal, and then drilled holes to allow the hydrogen to be released, so the chance of explosion was lower. The holes that he drilled were called Bosch holes. Don't know why that's important, but that's a, that's a big deal in the book. The new prototypes of the machines were up and running and creating two tons of ammonia a day by 1911. Remember, they started with a cubic centimeter, bare, like the tip of a teaspoon, and they thought that was a large amount of ammonia. And now they're creating two tons of ammonia a day. Then, a large German lawsuit, or a large German firm fired a loss, filed a lawsuit against BASF, and the leader of BASF passed away. It seemed as if it was the en- this was the end of the line for the nitrogen work. Then, they bought off the scientist who had filed the suit, and they threw the case in court. Bosch went into full production mode. They broke ground on full-sized ammonia production machines, and Bosch was the boss of it all. Haber, the other scientist, was just out there doing his own thing, making friends, living his own life. One of those friends that Haber had was Einstein. (laughs) Actual Einstein. They were really good friends, and Einstein went through a breakup. And Einstein quoted and said, without Haber, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So, the guy who created synthetic nitrogen was besties with Einstein, and Einstein had some really nice things to say about him. So, they called the machines the Haber-Bosch system, and all was going well, until this little thing called World War I started. Haber, wanting to be as German as possible, signed up for enlistment. So, the backstory on Haber. He was born Jewish, His family was very Jewish, and he realized that that was a problem because these uh, scientists are from Germany, and um, their Germany was very anti-Semitic while Haber was growing up. And so Haber converted to Christianity and tried to be as German as possible to cover up his quote-unquote Jewishness, which is what he called it. Um... He wanted to be a scientist and help Germany, so he didn't seem, quote-unquote, too Jewish. Chemists became very important during the war. Germany thought that the victory was for sure, but France and Britain fought back. Germany thought that they would need some new explosives, and they didn't have any way to get them. Germany settled on saltpeter for their explosives, and BASF offered to make it for them. Bosch offered to make the entire Haber-Bosch plant into a plant for military. 
turning the ammonia into saltpeter. BASF strived to make nitrogen to keep people alive, but then they switched the plants into making explosives for killing those same people. Bosch had a problem with that, and his conscience wouldn't let him stop thinking about that. By 1915, the Opal factory was operating 24 hours a day and was pushing out 150 tons of salt. After 1915, the BASF stopped all funding to any other projects and backed the Haber-Bosch system 100%. So they were still using the same systems and the same machines that they did to make the ammonia, but this time they were just making saltpeter and salt for explosives for war. The factory was then bombed by the French. Not a lot of damage was done, but the bombings kept coming, so the government and the BASF made a deal to make a new factory in a more discreet area. Like I said, Haber was Jewish, which put a wrench in a lot of his plans. Due to a greatly anti-Semitic culture in Germany, he converted to Christianity, and he tried to become as German as possible, and almost to a fault. He lived by an uncritical acceptance of the government. He only served one person other than himself in science, his Kaiser. He didn't care what they did. He supported them no matter what. He buried his Judaism and became as German as he could, shaving his head, fighting for Germany in the war, and changing who he was completely. Kaiser Wilhelm II was the person in charge during this time, and he was a nut job. He had a short temper, and his workers would literally dress up to entertain him and help his temper because he would get so pissed off and the workers wanted to... to, you know, hold that off. So they'd dress up, and one of them actually dressed up in a tutu and then had a heart attack and died after entertaining him. He had a deformity on his left arm, so he tried to hide it, but with his right arm, he got into trouble. He used it one time to pinch a young German prince until he cried, and he slapped the king of Bulgaria on the ass one time. So that's just a little bit about Kaiser Wilhelm II. And that's somebody that Haber loved because Haber wanted to be German and he wanted to serve the one true Kaiser. In World War I, Germany called it the Chemist's War. It seemed as if science was raised above politics during this time. Party didn't matter. All that mattered was Germany and their success, which came from chemistry. Wilhelm had an appreciation for science, and for this reason, Haber was made an advisor of the board. From there... Haber turned into a violent and angry scientist, not caring about the lives that he saved with his nitrogen experiments and findings, but killing the people who the Kaiser wanted dead. Haber was appointed the new chemical weapons head at the Prussian War Ministry, and this is where he began to create Germany's new deadly weapon. He wanted something that was like a fog, Something that was dense would hang in the air and dip in the trenches where their enemies were hide, would hide. Haber was an evil man during this time. All he wanted was to be German and to help Germany. He didn't care about helping others anymore. He just wanted to help Germany. And he said, quote, Every war is a war against the soul of a, so- soul of a soldier, not the body. New weapons break his morale because they are something new, something he's not experienced and therefore something that he fears. We were used to shell fire. The artillery did not do much to morale. 
So, Haber wanted to make this new deadly weapon. And that's when he created a gas that was primarily chlorine. In 1915, German troops deployed the gas on the front lines. The Allies were in shock and terrified. They retreated, and the Germans marched forward in their gas masks. The Kaiser was so pleased with his work that Haber was awarded an Iron Cross. But the Allies retaliated and learned from this. They began trying to make the same thing and then made makeshift respirators of their own. Haber knew there had to be something that would cause a drastic blow to the Allied forces, and that was a much more deadly and toxic gas. So, the guy who figured out how to make synthetic nitrogen and save the world's population was also responsible for creating chlorine gas, which would later turn into mustard gas. This is the same person. The person who had saved millions of lives now was responsible for killing others. Back to Bosch. He was still working on the new nitrate plant. The plant was gigantic, and it cranked out enough nitrate to keep Germany in the war. Historians say that if it weren't for the Haber-Bosch machines, the war would have ended one to two years earlier, which it should have. But thank you, Haber-Bosch. The war continued to trend on the side of the Allies, and Germany finally realized that. On November 9, 1918, Germany surrendered, with one-tenth of its pre-war population dead. The French began to march towards the German border after winning the war. They got to the original BASF factory, but not before BASF gutted it of the Haber-Bosch machines. Then, the French marched to the new factory. They set up camp outside the factory and attempted to figure out what was going on inside the factory because they were not given answers. Bosch made it as difficult as possible to see what was going on. When a French soldier would come in and snoop around, the workers would immediately put their tools down turn off all the machines, and stare. Troops would come and inspect the factory, and the ladder that they needed to inspect it would for some reason just be gone. And my favorite thing was one time, they even removed a whole staircase, so the inspectors just couldn't go upstairs. If they couldn't see the factory in action, they couldn't figure out what the Haber-Bosch method was. They couldn't figure out how the machines ran. So this was actually smart on Bosch. But as the Allies pushed harder and harder for a complete shutdown of German factories like BASF, Bosch negotiated with France and let them have one of their own Haber-Bosch factories. Bosch was appointed as the head of BASF after this and continued to protect his factories, but work with the Allies with what they needed. The more you hear about Bosch, the more you continue to like him, and the more you hear about Haber, the more you continue to dislike him. Haber was like, in the beginning when you start reading about Haber, you're like, oh, he's just like a cute little anxious scientist, and then he turns into a war criminal. And Bosch, you're like, okay, he's just like kind of, he's got a big ego, he's just a little intern, Call, like looking at scientists' stuff and telling them they're not good enough. And then Bosch is just like out here helping the allies. Homeboy, homeboy's a, a dude. A D-O-O-D. Anyway, um, 
I don't know how to transition into the next chapter. Um, so Haber was married with a son. Um, and his wife was not very happy with Haber. His wife had a PhD in chemistry. Um, and Haber didn't like the fact that she was smart and she was not the perfect housewife because he wanted to be as German as possible. And to be as German as possible, you had to have, you had to have a wife who knew how to cook, how to clean and go to church. And guess what his first wife did? None of that. Um, so Haber's wife found out what Haber did during World War I with the chlorine gas and couldn't take it anymore. Um, and she committed suicide. And then Haber, being the loving man that he, did, he is, remarried two years later to a woman who is 20 years younger than him. He found out he was wanted for war crimes because of his chlorine gas thing, and that if he stayed in Germany, he risked being imprisoned. He and his family moved to Switzerland, but then moved back to Berlin after finding out that the threats weren't real at all. He was pranked. Got him. Haber was then awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work on the Haber-Bosch system. He became known as a scientist again, not as the war criminal anymore. But he still kept in touch with German military leaders. He still wanted to work on the deadly poison gas for the war. He had a framed picture of the first gas attack from World War I. He seemed like he had come back to his senses, but still had dark ties with Germany. Haber was dead bent on rebuilding Germany to his former glory. To do this... He had to help pay he had to help his country pay off its debt of 132 billion gold marks to the Allies. After World War I, the Allies negotiated a deal with Germany that Germany would have to pay reparations to the Allies because of all the damage that they did. This uh, the reparations added up to 132 billion. So Haber being the good German boy he is, turned to the ocean. <laughs> abundant in resources. It had salt, trace amounts of minerals, and one of those minerals was gold. About six milligrams per ton. Six milligrams per ton. But Haber said, that adds up when you think about it. Look at how much ocean there is. There's got to be a lot of tons in there, and there's got to be a lot of milligrams. So, he tried everything to try and collect gold from the ocean. But after five years of testing and collecting as much gold from the ocean as he could, Haber realized that six milligrams per ton of ocean was way off. He never collected anything close to that number. So he gave it up and he said, you know what, some other scientists can deal with this. <laughs> so then Bosch, back to Bosch, our favorite boy. Uh, as the head of BASF, the chemical company in Germany, Bosch's workers became unruly and wanted better worker working conditions. Bosch tried his best to appease them, but then the workers went on strike and took over the factory. There was a 10-day standoff between the workers and the police. 30 workers and one policeman died. Bosch went through and fired every single worker involved and then rehired new people one by one. One day... Bosch heard a loud explosion that rattled him to his core. He was 10 miles away from the factory, but he knew that it came from the factory. 
Half of the building was now just a crater in the ground, and the buildings around it were flattened. 561 workers died, 1,700 injured, and 7,000 were left homeless. Bosch, after this event, gave a speech at a, at a memorial for the workers that had passed away. He struggled with knowing that the machines that gave so many life also took many lives of his workers away. After his speech, Bosch collapsed and had to take months off to recoup. Bosch couldn't get past the fact that he thought this was his fault. And honestly, he wasn't wrong. So, while Bosch recouped, workers attempted to find the cause of the explosion, and they found it. The factory stored ammonia and saltpeter, so they stored the ammonia that they needed for the nitrogen and the explosives that they had from the war together. And you know what happened? The explosives exploded. Who'd have thunk it? Anyway... Bosch had a new bright idea, and this was to create synthetic gasoline. He went to America, and after seeing all the cars, he knew that synthetic gasoline had to be the next big thing. He became the director of another chemical company in Germany, Farben, and was still the director of BASF, and he was a big shot. Haber, on the other hand, continued to have problems, divorced his wife, and was no longer proud of his work. But Bosch was doing really well. He was making synthetic rubber that was doing really well in the market. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't. This is when a certain someone started to rear their head in politics in Germany. Bosch became worried about Germany. He saw where the country was going, and he didn't like it. A new candidate was running for president during the spring elections, and that's what worried Bosch the most. They were anti-Semitic and temperate. And you know what their name was? Adolf Hitler. He received a worrying amount of votes. Bosch knew that if Hitler became his leader, the world would once again dislike Germany. Bosch spent his whole life working with Jewish people, and to hear the way that Hitler spoke about them sickened him. Then, after two chancellors stepped down, Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany, and Bosch was terrified. Haber then started to have a little bit of, I can't, I'm trying to figure out the word for this, but he, he has started to have an internal struggle, because during the early years of his life, he tried to be as German as possible, hide his Jewishness all the way. But as soon as Hitler came around, he realized, I've been trying to be German for so long, and now that doesn't matter. He started to hate the idea of assimilation. He began to regret the years where he kept his head down as a Jew. And as Hitler, became, or as Hitler began to become more of a dictator, Haber feared for his life. So, I'm going to ask you guys to bear with me here, because... I guess the notes that I had are no longer present on my computer. Um, so I am going to go off of memory here, uh, because I have read this book 
quite a few times. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just going to do that. I have the book in front of me. Let's go. Like I said, Haber feared for his life because he knew all he was seen for was Jewish, even though he'd fought in the war, even though he'd done all of these great things for Germany and um, been a phenomenal scientist. He was just seen as Jewish, and he the, knowing that terrified him. And Hitler came into power, and lawmakers gave him the power to be a dictator, abs- like completely. Um, and he started revoking civil liberties, and this scared Hopper even more. And then, um, in March 1933, state agencies were supplied with new flags featuring the swastika. They were told to put the flags up. And when Haber got news of this, he forced himself to personally direct the building supervisor into raising it, an act that, quote, was so much more dignified for Haber than if the requirement had been forced upon him. And that's what one of his employees said. Haber really thought that this thing was going to blow over. He thought that Hitler would be in and out. He thought that this thing wouldn't last as long as it did. And he just said, I'm going to bite the bullet, do it, get it over with keep my head down, keep my job, be safe, I'll be fine. And then they started asking Jewish judges to step down, and that shook Haber to his core. Because when you were Jewish in Germany during this time, the highest honor you could achieve was being a judge. And Haber knew if they were asking Jewish judges to step down, this meant scientists were no longer safe. This meant he might not have job security anymore. He then found out that since he worked at a state agency, um, the state agency was, it was like the Wilhelm Kaiser Institute for Chemistry and Electrophysia, I don't know, something like that. Um, All I know is the Kaiser Institute. And Haber got word that the only people that could work at this institute and at state institutes were people who were of the Aryan race or war veterans. Haber was safe because he fought in World War I. All of his scientists that worked under him, all of his coworkers, all of his friends, they were gone. It was the end of his German dream. And then this is when Haber started writing to Einstein again and being like, what do I do? And Einstein was like, dog, get out. Um, Haber didn't listen, but Einstein then started writing anti-German propaganda and pissed Germany off a lot. Germany found out that, like, the state actually found out that Haber was Jewish, and they started writing anti-Haber propaganda in newspapers, um... And what they wrote were the the directorship of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Physical and Electrochemistry was given to the Jew, Fritz Haber, the nephew of big-time Jewish profiteer Koppel. The work was reserved almost exclusively for Jews. The fun thing is Haber wasn't related to the dude, wasn't this dude's nephew. And three quarters of the workers in his institute were not Jewish. Then Haber 
had to get back to his office and start looking at the people that he was going to have to let go. And as he looked at this list, men and women that he had hired who had done excellent work, something turned in him like a key in a rusty lock. He decided to resign. On April 30th, Haber wrote a letter to the Prussian Ministry of Education. A good civil servant to the end, he buried his emotion in bureaucratic prose. He said, My decision to request retirement derives from the contrast between the research tradition in which I have lived up to now and the changed views which you, minister, and your ministry advocate as representatives of the current large national movement, he wrote. My tradition requires that in scientific post, when choosing co-workers, I consider only the professional and personal qualifications of applicants, without considering their racial makeup. You will not expect a man in his 65th year to change this manner of thinking, which has guided him for the past 39 years of his life in higher education. And you will not understand, and you will understand that the pride with which has served he has served his German homeland his whole life, long now dictates this requirement for resignation. Haber couldn't do it anymore. And this is kind of a redemption arc for Haber. He started out wanting to be as German as he can, hating Jewish people, hating the thought of being Jewish, even was a war criminal in World War I, and now is coming back and resigning from the only thing that he loves, his job, because they're being so anti-Semitic. And this is, this is honestly a, a redemption arc. But Hitler was not happy with this. The government was not happy with this. His resignation caused a lot of fury, both among the Nazis and among those German scientists who now realize that Hitler's new law might mean the end of Germany's great quest and part in science. After resigning, Haber was shattered. He had had a lot of health problems, but it wasn't his health problems this time. And not just his nervous exhaustion because he has breakdowns once a year, but he was shattered because he had a feeling that he created a life for himself that was false, that he had been living a lie. He spent his career fashioning himself into the perfect German. He now understood what that meant. In Hitler's terms, despite his conversion, his Nobel Peace Prize, his Iron Cross, his efforts to save the nation, his internalized stature, his service, his achievements, and his value as a man, the only thing that mattered was that he was a Jew. Back to Bosch. Bosch was still working at Farben and BASF. Um, Farben was not a state agency, but... Germany and, you know, the state still had a lot of interest in Farben because they did help in World War One. They were, um, and they had the ability to make weapons. And so Farben representatives started to make contact with Nazis after the um, Bruning government fell and took the political center with it. As early as November 1932, Hitler, with, Hitler met with some of Bosch's people to talk about the future of synthetic gasoline, which was Bosch's next big thing. He had figured out how to make ammonia. Now he was figuring out, hey, how do I make synthetic gasoline? The meeting, scheduled to last an hour, but running more than two, was fateful. Hitler, it turned out, was a fan of the automobile. 
He saw the future in which Germans drove German people cars, Volkswagens, on high-speed German highways, Autobahns. He knew they would need gasoline, and he knew that Germany had no natural source, except for what Farben could make. He was surprisingly well-informed about the technical side of the Burgess process. He was in favor of Luna, which was the factory, and he told the Farben men, adding, German motor fuel must become a reality, even if this entails sacrifices. It was everything they could have hoped for. When Bosch's executives told him about the meeting, Bosch is said to have remarked, man's more sensible than I thought. Then Hitler's team wanted to have a meeting with a whole bunch of chemical agencies in Germany, and they wanted to um, talk to the agencies about backing Hitler for his re-election because they were making it seem as if Hitler backed science, Hitler knew everything about science, and so he was going to be a good chancellor for the scientists. And so the chemists sat there, they listened to Hitler's spiel. After that, um, they said, please chip in. This is what we'll ask. Chemical producers were expected to chip in 500,000 marks each. Bosch's people took notes because Bosch didn't want to go and talk to Hitler or see Hitler because he didn't like the man. And when Bosch heard about Hitler's speech and about the funding request, his only response was shrugging his shoulders. Bosch finally decided it was time to meet face-to-face with Hitler. So he made the mistake of doing that. Hitler did a lot of research on Bosch and found out that Bosch was not a fan of his. Bosch had made many anti-Hitler remarks, was fairly liberal, um, came from a liberal part of town, from liberal parents, had many liberal friends, and so Hitler was already not really liking Bosch that well. Bosch's meeting with Hitler started well enough. Bosch talked about synthetic gasoline and the need to expand Luna, their factory. Hitler seemed agreeable. But then, for some reason, Bosch started, he felt compelled to start talking about the civil service law and the damage it would be done to the German chemistry and physics if it was applied unsparingly to Jewish scientists. Hitler lost his temper. <laughs> he shouted, you don't understand these matters, and started ranting about Jewish, the Jewish threat. If the Jews were so important to physics and chemistry, Hitler said, then we'll just have to work 100 years without physics and chemistry. When Bosch tried to disagree, Hitler, in a calculated insult, rang for an aide and announced that his visitor wished to leave. Bosch was stunned. He told his friends later that Hitler seemed to go into a sort of trance when he was excited, like a man lost in a dream. The Farben staff did its best after that to keep Bosch away from Hitler, and the two men never spoke privately again. They were in the same room together only once when Bosch attended the first meeting of Hitler's Council on the Economics. Bosch had been asked to give a speech. He planned to say something about the benefits of open international business, scientific communication. He knew the topics were risky, and he knew that Hitler would be in the audience, but the people should have a say later on. And that's what Bosch thought. But when Hitler thought that, or Hitler learned that Bosch was going to speak, he turned and left the hall. Nazi organizers ordered that a new speaker be found. When the group declined, they closed the meeting, and the Economics Council never met again. Bosch now better understood what Hitler represented. He thought about Farben. 
and the many Jewish researchers, all the board members. He thought about Haber, who at this time is still struggling with the dis- dissolution of his, dis- his institute. They had never been close during the years following their work in ammonia, but now, following Haber's resignation on his own interview with Hitler, Bosch felt a sort of kinship. He dictated a note. I heard with great regret in Berlin how very oppressed you feel personally by the present circumstances, he wrote Haber. You might know that I have tried everything possible in order to make the measures against scientists somewhat bearable, and I do not need to assure you that the personal side of the whole movement affects me extremely deeply. If I can be of any assistance to you somehow, then I am naturally glad, or I am naturally gladly at your disposal. And like it said, this was a big deal because they hadn't talked since the ammonia thing. There was still a bond between these two people because they had worked on saving the population. And so it was kind of sweet to read that little letter because Bosch really knew that Haber was hurting. Then back to Haber, our redemption arc boy. He then accepted a position at Cambridge as a professor um, and began teaching. And he started to do a lot of like lecture circuits, going up to Switzerland and stuff, but his health was in rapid decline. Um, His heart was not doing well, and people could tell. He was so glad, though, that he got his job at Cambridge because... What he said was his main goal was that he did not die a German citizen and that he didn't bequeath to any of his children or grandchildren the civil rights of second-class citizens, as German law now demands that they accept and endure on account of their Jewish grandparents and great-grandparents. After Einstein heard about this, Einstein wrote Haber because they're best friends, which I think is so cool. Einstein said, I'm especially glad that your earlier love of the blonde beast, Germany, has cooled off a bit. Who would have thought that my dear Haber would appear before me as an advocate for the Jewish and even Palestine's cause? Einstein thought Haber should never return to Germany where he wrote so-called intellectuals had been shown to be men who lie on their bellies before the common criminals and even sympathize with those criminals to a certain extent. While Haber was on his way to one of the lecture circuits, he started having a lot of trouble with his heart. He got as far as he could and ended up having to stop in Switzerland and see a doctor. And the doctor was like, dog, you can't travel anymore. And Haber was like, I'm still going to try. Um, But the doctor took him to a hotel and sat him down. And this was like, Haber was kind of acting like he was on his deathbed and talked about, I used to be one of the greatest men in Germany. I was an army commander. I was the captain of an industry. I was the founder of industries. My work was essential for the economic and military expansion of Germany. And now I'm poor and dying. And then the doctor was like, all right, dog, like, please rest. Like you got to chill. And Haber said, no. (laughs) And so Haber left the hotel and on his way out of the hotel, he had a major heart attack. He was still alive, but barely took several months to recoup and he really began to spiral after that he had to have a full-time caregiver which was his sister um 
All of his money was practically gone at this point because he had had to move so many times. And he was paying his sister to take care of him. And since Hobber, or since Bosch wrote to him and was like, hey, you can call on me anytime, Hobber wrote to him. And the letter was received in the Farben offices toward the end of 1933. You are a man of decisive importance, Hobber wrote. You offered me your aid, of your own record, and I took your words seriously. Won't you make it possible for me to live out these remaining years of pitifully diminished health and strength and peace and decency? And this line kills me because it's really, really sad. There's no reply on record. Hopper was weaker by the day and pain and seemed to resign to it. A local heart specialist was called after Hopper started having a really, really bad fit. Um, and this time everybody knew it was time. The doctors did what they could for Hopper, but his heart was too damaged and he ended up passing away. He was buried next to his first wife, and on his tombstone, it said he served his country in war and peace as long as was granted him. And his son put that on the gravestone because he couldn't stand to say anything about his father's service to Germany. Um, so back to Bosch. Also very sad, Rip Hopper. Um, he had a really good redemption arc. And when I read that the first time, I actually got teary-eyed because it was really sad because I don't know. <laughs> he asked, <laughs> he, well, Bosch reached out and was like, I'll give you any help you need. And Haber was like, thanks, I need help. And then nothing happened. But that's because Bosch was doing everything he could to protect, to protect his Jewish employees. He was trying to play the game of being friends with the Nazis and being friends with Hitler and working on synthetic gasoline, but also keeping it under the table that he still had Jewish people working for him. Um, Bosch ended up coming to an agreement with Hitler, and the agreement ensured that Hitler's government would, be, would buy every gallon of synthetic fuel made at Farben at a price high enough to cover the production cost and a bit of profit. In exchange, the Nazis asked Farben to Farben to expand their plant and boost production. Um, it appeared that in essence, Bosch was getting into bed with the Nazis in exchange for keeping his dream factory alive. And that's what it did seem like. It seemed like Bosch was signing deals with Nazi with the Nazis to keep his factory alive because the factory was his child. The factories that he were he was working at, he built, he designed, he was the architect, he did everything. He built the machines in them too. But he also cared about his employees and wanted to make sure that they were okay. So even though it seemed like he was kind of a Nazi scumbag, he wasn't as bad as, you know, makes them seem. Or it makes him seem. Um, anyway, a few, few months later, few maybe a year, the timeline is not really great in this part of the book, um, but... One of Haber's old friends, Plonk, um, decided to say a big F you to the government and have a memorial for Fritz Haber, which was really cute and really sweet. Um, the government was still really pissed at Haber, um, and when he died, they kind of celebrated. 
And so Plonk was like, hey, y'all, we need to celebrate this man who did a lot of good. And even though he did some bad things, he came back from it and tried to help um, his Jewish colleagues and friends out as much as he could near the end of his life. And so Plonk organized a memorial for Haber and he rented out this huge ballroom that had like 500 or 600 people allowed in it um and then the Germany was literally like hey if you're a state employee we'll fire you if you go to this and Planck was like okay well nobody's gonna show up but we're still gonna have it and so all the state employees ended up sending their wives in solidarity so the wives would represent their husbands And then there were, you know, a few people in the room. And then all of a sudden, led by Carl Bosch, a large group of men and women from Farben arrived and packed the hall. When Bosch had heard about the event from Planck, he spread the word personally urging chemists and engineers from the old BASF operation to honor the man who had made their fortunes and telegramming invitations to all of his directors. His office helped arrange travel for the trip across Germany from um, a town, I can't pronounce, to Berlin. He had, it appeared, sold only part of his soul to the Nazis. And I cried at that part, too, because that's so sweet. He literally was, like, telling, like, he was, like, you guys owe your entire life, your entire fortune, everything that you guys make to this man. So I'm going to organize your travel. I'm going to make sure that you guys make it and your jobs are going to be secure. And he showed up with like a horde of people behind him and it was really sweet. Anyway, after the memorial, um, Bosch kind of lost it. He realized, hey, I'm not doing the best thing that I can for my employees, which is being loyal to them while, you know, I'm also kind of in bed with the Nazis. I can't do that anymore. He became kind of a loose cannon. And in 1935, the board began tying him down. Bosch was just over 60 years old, too young to retire. So following the death of Carl Duisberg, I think, in March, the board moved him out of the day-to-day executive decision-making and into (laughs) Duisberg's vacant position as the head of Farben Managing Board. This was, on paper, a promotion, but it really just put Bosch in an office and told him, hey, just, like, don't touch anything and sit there. Um, And then Bosch was offered Plonk's job. That's, this is a lot, I'm so sorry. Um, And in 1937, he replaced Plonk at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute His attitude towards the Nazis had not changed. During negotiations for the position, he asked specifically about the organization's policies regarding non-Aryan employees. And the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute officials assured him that that they had not adopted the Nazis' uh, law. Bosch agreed to take the post. He worked there for a few years, and then he started to become really guilty and depressed and fell into kind of like an alcoholic depression because he began to realize that, or not realize, but he started to think that Hitler's success and Germany's success and the reason that Germany was such a monster was 
because of him. Before Hitler took power, Bosch had said about the Haber-Bosch ammonia process, I've often asked myself whether it would have been better if we had just had not succeeded. The war perhaps would have ended sooner, with less misery and on better terms. Gentlemen, these questions are all useless. Progress in science and technology cannot be stopped. They are in many ways skin to art. One can persuade the one to halt as little as the others. They drive the people who are born for them to activity. Bosch continued to kind of go downhill. During the years before his death, it became his whole attitude that it was he himself who, without knowing or wanting it, made Hitler's policies possible. And it was accurate. Bosch's life's work, his breakthroughs in factories, his attempts to feed the world and make profits for his company, they were used to arm and fuel the Nazis' machine. And that made, that made Bosch sick to his stomach. So one day, uh, some Nazi officers came in and asked Bosch his opinion on Hitler's plan to invade Czechoslovakia. They asked Bosch if German factories would be ready for the kind of war that would happen, and Bosch said no. And then the officers asked him if he would say that to Hitler himself, <laughs> and Bosch said no. <laughs> and after that, they'd got what they wanted from Bosch. He was no longer relevant, and his opinion no longer mattered. Bosch kind of spiraled after that. His depression got worse. His, he became an alcoholic. He was asked to give a speech at a museum, and he, he said he was sick, to, too sick to give the speech, but then showed up to give the speech anyway, but he was drunk and then started um, talk, like speaking very negatively about Hitler um, and got booed and kicked off the stage and remo removed from the board of the museum. And he wasn't arrested, but he should have been in that time. Um, and after that, Bosch fell out of public view. He kind of left as quickly as he showed up. Um, and then he spiraled even more. And eventually, on April 26th of 1940, Carl Bosch passed away. If you've made it this far in the podcast, this is your reward. Because this is the last, last chapter of the book. And this is where it ties every bit of information we just learned into a beautiful little gift. So I'll just read directly from the book. Because it, it, uh, this literally is like poetry. And it's kind of beautiful to me. But maybe that's just because I'm a giant nerd. Anyway, today, hundreds of huge Haber-Bosch plants are drinking in air and turning out ammonia, producing enough fertilizer not only to support a burgeoning human population, but to improve average diets worldwide. All the plants run on the same principles Haber and Bosch pioneered and are filled with the same basic catalyst that Alwyn Mitash found almost a century ago. They are, however, ever even larger and more efficient. In Carl Bosch's day, the tallest ammonia ovens were 30 feet high. Now they top 100 feet. 
1938, it took an average of 1,600 workers to produce 1,000 tons a day of ammonia. Today, it takes 55 workers to make the same amount. In the early days, it took four times as much energy to make a ton of fertilizer as it does now. Still, the demand for their products is so great that Haber-Bosch plants today consume 1% of all the energy on the earth, and the largest factories produce so much ammonia that it has to be transported in pipelines. One of the first ammonia pipelines in the United States, built in the late 1960s, runs from the plant in Texas to the cornfields of Iowa. This huge, almost invisible industry is feeding the world. Without these plants, somewhere between 2 billion and 3 billion people, about 40% of the world's population, would starve to death. And then, the last, the last paragraph that gets me, every scientific discovery is two-edged. We have been so successful at meeting Sir William Crook's challenge that humans are now threatened to overrun this earth. Just as nitrogen-eating algae and water plants overrun ponds and seas. Thanks to our recent access to endless fertilizer and the development of hardy, high-yield varieties of rice and wheat, the so-called green revolution of the late 20th century, we are confronted with the abundance of food unprecedented in, him in human history. Thomas Malthus has been confounded. Ours is an age marked not by mass starvation, but by the easy availability of cheap, high-calorie food. Our health problem is not malnutrition, but the conditions related to overweight, from diabetes to heart disease. We are dying of plenty, and the problem is not limited to the most developed nations. One quarter of all adults in Thailand are overweight, and about a third of the residents in Beijing, and half of the men and more of half of the women in Mexico. This, too, is the legacy of Haber-Bosch. They did what they set out to do. They fed the world. And instead of mass starvation, we now have obesity. But I think we can handle that. This, like I said, is one of my favorite books because the twists and the turns of finding out about how we came to have the American Polynesia and then finding out that the same scientist responsible for feeding the world then created the predecessor for mustard gas. And then one of the other scientists who was responsible for feeding the earth was meeting with Hitler. <laughs> it's just a wild ride from start to finish. But I'm so glad that I got to share this book with you and tell you guys about all of this crazy information. And like I said, if you're interested in reading this, it's it's kind of dry if you don't like nonfiction, but it's it's a page turner. Some of the chapters aren't, you know, as great as others, but that's what you get. And it's really informative, really interesting, very entertaining. And so I do recommend this book. 10 out of 10. Would read again. Have read again. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for listening and again, um, and yeah, just hope you learned a lot about Haber and Bosch today and hope you have a great day until next time.